Y'all, welcome back to Kentucky Fried Wargaming, where two guys who aren't qualified to talk about anything decide to talk about a game with hard math and chance. I'm Joe. And I'm John. And on this episode of the podcast, I feel like we're going to answer one of the questions that are almost like a, a greeting in the tabletop wargaming community, especially for people who play uh, Games Workshop and especially 40k. Uh, it's kind of like, remember when y'all were younger and you were in grade school and people would always ask like what your favorite dinosaur was and how that answer actually mattered john you remember uh no i didn't have friends in grade school who asked me what dinosaurs i liked all right john well this episode topic's changed john what's your favorite dinosaur <laughs> i can't remember off the top of my head i'm bad with names how do, we, how do you not I, know your own favorite dinosaur john listen i love i love all dinosaurs like you can show me a dinosaur and go oh yeah a dinosaur and i'm just really excited to be looking at a dinosaur like that's just how i work jesus christ john what a shame shame on you episode canceled because john can't remember dinosaur names um well john for people who are normal uh, it was just one of those questions that you were like, oh, yeah, his favorite dinosaur is a plesiosaur. Noted. And I don't know why it was. Well, it's probably actually I do know why it's because we were neurodivergent children and that probably explains it. But I want to take the same concept and answer it here on the podcast with the question that almost everybody who plays 40K or 30K at some point will ask you, who is your favorite Primarch. And it's a small question. And for people who aren't super into those games, uh, you're probably like, yeah, just like give a character name. However, flame wars have been fought and died for in comment threads over this particular topic. And uh, I don't know. I always think it's fun to dive into. And I think you could tell a lot about a person's taste and, uh, Maybe even a little bit about their priorities by which Primarch they like the most. However, first, hobby time and games played. Ooh, all right, John. Hobby progress. Yes. Well, if you've listened to our last episode, you'll know that we haven't been getting a lot of hobby progress done. But I swear we have a good reason. Yes. And uh, for those of you who have listened to the previous episodes, uh, this will be a lot of hearing the same thing over again. We're sorry. <laughs> uh, we're recording all of these ahead of time and talking about a huge game day that we had recently when we're going to talk about each series of games we had on each separate day for a couple of weeks uh, while we go handle moving and doing a bunch of life stuff that makes it very hard to record. But we figured we could do all this ahead of time so that you guys still get to have some fun content. Yeah, we don't want to leave y'all hanging while we're moving. So uh, ideally, you know, we've planned to where you probably won't even notice, but the one thing we couldn't get around was the hobby progresses, because they're topical. We normally have to record them the week of, even for backlog episodes. Uh, but in this case, John and I are moving into our first houses. So there's really not time to be doing, Hobby. And all of our stuff is not really... Well, at least my stuff is all in boxes, so I, I can't, Hobby. 
Um, but I promise, if you give us just a couple of weeks of these sort of fill-in hobby progresses and games played, uh, we will have our own hobby spaces. And uh, the hobby will come back with a vengeance, I'm sure. Uh, however, to be honest, the games were super fun, so I really don't think it's even kind of a, a consolation prize. They're just good to talk about. Yeah. And if you like this, we can do this again in the future. Yeah. Uh, I think it'd be, it would be great to make little miniature uh, you know, audio battle reports. Fantastic. Yeah, I think it's fun as hell. Um, and for those of you who want a full sort of play-by-play, uh, the last episode of the podcast has it in the Hobby Progress section. But just to briefly summarize, uh, we had a big game day for our Bud Tanner, who had his birthday weekend, and uh, up where he plays, he has people to play 40k with, but he doesn't have people to play AOS with, and he's been wanting to play for a while. So we decided we were going to play games all day. I mean, non-stop AOS. So we got together, uh, the five of us, and uh, we played games all day. So we had a morning game. Uh, we got together at like 8.30. So we had a morning game before lunch, and then we squared off for a second game, after lunch at 2,000 points. And then after dinner, we fell into a pit of avarice um, and played a colossal game that we, huh, we'll talk about next episode. Um, however, there was a narrative for the day that we were working on. So, John, I feel like we have to give a bit of the narrative and uh, a quick summary of game one for game two to make any sense. Okay, uh, we'll summarize this as quickly as possible. Skaven show up in the woods, Skaven beat the orcs, Skaven continue on into the woods. The orcs that get beaten by the Skaven decide to travel north through the forest to go fight the Sylvaneth. Those are led by Warboss Tanser. Mm-hmm. On the other side, we've got, uh, what was it, Warboss Cheese Whiz? Yes, that was the name that Tanser gave Corwin's Warboss. Okay, we've got Warboss Cheese Whiz who faces against the trees in the north first because he thinks that them with it being winter, they won't be they'll be slow and they won't be quite so fighty, and he might be able to win this time against the trees that he's so often lost against. But alas The trees gets wake his ass up. Beat. <laughs> yeah. He showed up not strapped and got clapped by these trees. It was bad. Uh, and so he goes, oh no, I gotta leave. And he starts moving in a direction. That does sum it up. And now, what happened after? So, um, essentially, what the orcs were trying to do was get some revenge on these trees who have who have beat Warboss Cheese with so many times in the past. Uh, and depending on how game one went, uh, was going to determine our game two pairings. So... If Corwin's Iron Jaws beat my Sylvadef, then they were going to get enough confidence to look at Warboss Tanzer's orcs and go, uh, you know, we're big enough to take you on. I should be big boss because I killed the trees. And if that were the case, they would have paired off. However, the uh, Cheese Whiz's force losing meant that they fled. And instead, Warboss's Tanzer's force came looking for the trees, thinking that they if they're the biggest boss, then they'll fix this problem. No issue. So they came strolling up, ready to attack the trees. However, the trees were now very awake, 
and very mad. And uh, we faced off in a brutal snowy tundra fight with 2,000 points on each side. And uh, because the forces got bigger, they really did bring their biggest boss because uh, they brought Gordrak on a Maw Crusher. Gordrak, the Fist of Gork, was on the battlefield <laughs> to prove that he was the biggest boss. And uh, he faced off against my Sylvaneth. And I actually took, just for the story of it, I took the same base list as game one and then just added some to it. So I had the same uh, Tree Lord Ancient on the field. I had the same Karnoth Hunters on the field. Uh, I added an extra unit of Dryads. I brought uh, a... Uh, and a tree lord. No, yeah, it was fifteen hundred. It wasn't two thousand. We were playing at fifteen hundred points. Yes, fifteen hundred. Um, oops, our fault. Oopsie doopsie. Uh, yeah, and I threw in a spirit of Durthu to fill up the rest of the points, so that you know I would have a big hitter on the field and to you know go up against his big hitter essentially. And uh, the orc showed up on the battlefield, and they took turn one. And Gordrak came screaming into the tree lord, to the trees. Uh, he double moved across the board like 24 inches, top of turn one, like a missile. Um, which is something that the trees, having fought Iron Jaws many times before, were kind of expecting. Um, so the, there were some dryads who were up front trying to like stop... Gordrak from getting to Durthu and their larger Kurnoth brethren. Uh, and these dryads are actually what turned the game. And I don't think most would think that, but they are. Um, the big Mawcrusher comes storming in, and the sisters run up, and the Mawcrusher screams at them, which would normally shatter humans to bits. And they hold firm. Uh... He then is mad enough that he charges them to try to crush them under his incredible weight of this, like, Komodo dragon gorilla lizard. Uh, and they should all, by all rights, die to the charge. But they hold firm. Uh, and in mechanical terms, I mean, really, these dryads took all of the screams and lived and then took his impact hits and still lived. And uh, he had to kill them in combat, which meant he couldn't get in to the spirit of Durthu and the Kurnoth behind the dryads, which was kind of his hope. That if he could sprint up and he could kill the dryads with his roar attack and his charge impact hits, that there would then be nothing to stop him from getting into Durthu and one-shotting him, which was a great plan. And statistically speaking, it should have worked. The dice did not agree. Uh, so he charged the Dryads, he crushed them in combat, they fell in pulp, but their heroic sacrifice was all that was needed. Um, because then it was... Durthu's turn, and he came charging forward uh, with a reckless attack, uh, came screaming out of the forest, and impaled the mega boss, doing, I think, 12 wounds? And then the Kurnoth came up to reinforce him, and they dropped the mega boss down to one wound. 
And next turn, Durthu used his shots into the Mega Boss and killed him. So essentially, he, you know, picked up the throat, exposing the chest, stabbed him, and then ex- sent out his shots into the chest cavity and exploded the Maw Crusher. And killed Gordrak outright. And then kept going. Uh, he was kind of like a like a spinning Beyblade just running around the field. And he <laughs> just <laughs> kept killing. Just kept killing. Uh, Tanner made a gif after the game. Uh, I'm sure people have seen it. The gif of like the guy at the backyard barbecue. And pe- every time someone comes up to him, he just slaps them out of the way and keeps slapping. Uh, yeah, that was Durthu defending the grove. So he killed Gordrak, the Fist of Gork, and then that turn charged into a unit of pigs, killed all three pigs. Next turn, charges into another unit of pigs, kills all three pigs, and just keeps murdering. Uh, He gets charged by brutes. He murders all the brutes. It was bad. I mean, don't get me wrong. There were other stuff around the table teleporting and doing objectives and stuff and like winning the game or whatever, but... Really, it was Durthu doing all of the, uh, I guess he turned on Rip and Tear from Doom, and, uh, he was ready, he took his pre-workout, and he was ready to rock. To be fair, that's how I work. Like, if I put on the Doom soundtrack and do some pre-workout, I too will slap everyone at a barbecue. Oh, man, he did. He did. No one left alive that didn't have branches. Um, it was a preposterous route. All because of those dryads staying in Gordrak's way. And uh, it was a decisive Sylvaneth victory. And the fun part there was like, after that match, both the war bosses had a talk and they decided that the real war boss was the spirit of Durthu. So, <laughs> <laughs> that he is actually the biggest lad and they should probably listen to him from now on. So, uh, I am going to convert up my spirit of Durthu. Uh, I think I'm going to take some orcs and, like, hang them from his branches like corpses and maybe some, like, being pulled under the ground at his base. Uh, and I'm going to maybe get, like, a big metal, uh, Iron Jaw's chest plate and, like, put it over his chest. And he will be a war boss from now on. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. He is the biggest boss. He is the biggest lad. He won. <laughs> um, and what that also determined was that the Sylvaneth had won two games in a row. So narratively speaking, they have defended the Grove and pushed the invasion back. And now they are on the offensive. Because essentially for the first two games, they were on the defense. Um, you know, it's winter. They were probably senesced for the season and just waiting out the snow. But now that they're awake, they're real mad. And that narrative continues in the third giant game. We'll get there. Right. And so for, are you, are you good, Joe? Yeah, uh, I'm good. I mean, the orcs were sent running. Uh, both war orc armies were then in retreat. Uh, however, while Warboss Tanzer's orc army was fleeing from trees, uh, Warboss Cheese Wiz's army may have been intercepted by uh, some other nefarious forces in their fleeing. Yeah, so what happened, and I did not play in this game, full disclosure. This was our editor and dear friend Seth playing his Heed Knights of Slanesh. 
intercepted war boss cheese whiz as he is trying to escape and to make it all make sense canonically this is after the fight with uh between joe and tanzer between those the sylvan death and tanzer and Mordrak is running he is leaving in this entire grove and also trying to get out but he runs into a fight over here with the Sil- with the uh he knights of slanesh oh no Probably brought and, here by the Skaven's manipulations, warp portals and stuff. Yeah, I, I assume they're here for some artifacts, here for some some things. I like to think that these these Skaven are just conned the Slanesh Slaneshi Heed Knights to come attack this forest. I think that'd be great. Regardless, we're kind of just antagonists in this story. Mm-hmm. Really, this was the, around the orcs narrative. It was much more of the Orc Sylvaneth narrative. The Chaos people were there to just add in a little bit of extra fight. At least that was the way to go. If the Chaos won harder, it might have changed. But we'll get to that in third game. Yeah. And so this game went about as such. Orcs are running through the forest. Slanesh pop out of the trees with magic and a Keeper of Secrets. (laughs) Uh, Oh, no. (laughs) And many... Many Hedonites. And it turns into a meatball in the, like, right-hand corner of the map. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, the right middle of the map. In which it is just brutes and warbots. At one point, like, the Keeper of Secrets and Godrak are fist-fighting each other for, like, two turns. Oh, that's awesome. What a fight. It was, it was a very cool narrative fight. And, like, they're both using all of the monster abilities... To like buff each other and they're trying to fight each other and it's super great. Um, but unfortunately, the Keeper of Secrets rolled very, very well. Oh no. For everything. Spiked the mortal <laughs> wounds, probably. Spiked the mortal wounds, spiked its saves, uh, its after saves, its ward saves. Oh no. And Godrak just ended up just going down. Uh, which is why you will not see him returning for the third uh game. Mm-hmm. He got slapped hard enough that he went, I'm just going to go back to Gur and left. <laughs> I got other places to be. Sorry, guys. I hear my Kragnos calling. And <laughs> turned and left. The Chinese buffet closes in two hours. I got to go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, the fight ended up being a holler brawl in the center of the map between Slanesh and he and uh, Iron Jaws, and it was it was over as quickly as it began in a lot of ways, but at the same time, it was like a long drawn out slobber knocker of a fight. Whew. But where that took the narrative was that these orcs couldn't get away, and the other orcs couldn't get away. They couldn't get out of this forest, so they got to go to the only place they can think of to get out, and that's a portal. That's a realm gate. Tucked away within the bowels of the forest. Yes. Which may or may and not cause be... some problems. Yes. And we'll get into that in episode three of we are going to call it, I don't know, Forest Orc Fun Times. Forest Orc Fun Times. I don't know if that's... Forest Orc Fun Times. I like the name, but I don't think it's... We got to workshop that. That's okay. Uh, Hot Orc Summer becomes... Dead orc autumn. Boy, I don't know. Yeah, that works. 
orc mold. I, I really like the idea of a bunch of orcs in a pumpkin patch. That sounds rad. I love it. Sitting there, sticking their head through those boards with like bodies painted on them, and you stick your head through to look goofy. Have an apple yeah. cider, getting lost in a maze. Sounds great. Love it. Yeah, but you can't forget about your ogres being fat lad fall. Ah, can't wait. When I get into the new place, that's coming. That's coming. Uh, but for now, y'all, well, I just want to thank you again for giving us a little bit of flexibility in the hobby progress section. We appreciate it. And uh, the next one, it's gonna be a banger. Uh, game three was colossal. Can't wait to tell you about it. Thanks, y'all. All right, John. So if we're gonna have this conversation, I guess we have to, for our people who like to listen to the show but maybe don't know a lot about 40k or 30k, we quickly tell me what is a Primark and why does everyone's favorite Primark matter so much? Primarks are big men with big feelings. That's every Space Marine, but continue. Bigger men with bigger feelings. Now that's <laughs> very <they> true. <laughs> They all have daddy issues. <laughs> God, the Horus Heresy is just 50 books of big men with big feelings talking about how they feel about one another. And they're dead. Like, and they're dead. Just... <laughs> Glorious. <laughs> That's the entirety of the Horus Heresy. Um, so what the Primarchs are, are they are the progenitors of the Space Marines. They were these genetically created super beings, essentially demigods, that then were used to create the Space Marine Legions that came after them. Yeah, and with every Jeans. Legion can trace their lineage to one of these 18 Primarchs. Um, and a lot of their physical traits and some of their sort of personality quirks and tendencies are tied to these Primarchs. Uh, you can think of them sort of like uh, the gods in the Greek pantheon, I think is probably the best way to sort of make an analogy or to picture them or you know any uh sort of uh theism that has multiple gods who are all kind of relatively equal in power uh, there's some lesser some greater but like generally speaking they're all pretty high up there um and what i think is interesting is that they are all kind of unique and many of them very flawed characters some less flawed um and I, it is just really fun to talk about them because I think they act as an anchor for the rest of the story. Uh, in a, yeah. you know, in a space opera this dramatic, spanning this far of a galaxy, I know we the books talk a whole lot about like the faceless millions, but uh, faceless millions aren't great for storytelling. It's just not. Um, and I think having these eighteen primarchs that you can give a name, you could give a personality, you can make into a full character and use as a tool to show the rest of the world has made them incredibly pivotal and so awesome in both Horus Heresy and even into 40k for some. Yeah, and if you really want to dive into it too, the writers have even said that a lot of the Horus Heresy stuff with the Primarchs and everything was built to kind of be a mythology. They did pull from like Greek mythology, Norse mythology, Egyptian mythology to build these characters. Mm-hmm. And I and and I think that's you know kind of evident for some of the names. 
Very. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think it's it's very interesting. It does it tells a lot about like what your tastes are when it comes to stories. And uh, we're gonna share our taste with you today. Yeah, because I feel like it is a good way to get to know somebody. And for those of you out there in podcast land, I mean, especially for the people who listen on sort of the various podcast platforms, uh, we like y'all a lot. Uh, however. We, I don't know if you really necessarily know us too well, because we just sort of are figureless floating heads. Well, not even floating heads. You don't even know what we look like. We're just disembodied voices who talk about the game that you like, or games that you like. So any chance we can to sort of open up a little bit, um, to maybe be a little bit more of people, I think is cool to do. And I, I hope this conversation might give you a little sneaky peeky into a sort of what our priorities are. You know, working on uh, deepening that parasocial relationship. <laughs> um, uh, Joe, tell me who your favorite Primark is. Just tell me. John, you know. You know the answer. I know, but the listeners don't know, and I'm th- doing something called a segue, Joe. <laughs> oh my god, well, where were you ten minutes ago? Um, ooh, that was spicy. <laughs> John, uh... My favorite Primark of all Primarks is, by and far, Vulcan, the Primark and progenitor of the Salamanders. Um, I adore Vulcan. He is such an interesting character, especially in reading the Horus Heresy novels. Uh, for people out there, I guess I'll give a general description of Vulcan. Uh, he is a... You could think of him sort of like... Hephaestus, for those of you who are familiar with Greek mythology. Um, He is a tall, broad-shouldered, barrel-chested man standing about 12 feet tall with obsidian black skin. And I don't mean sort of like African skin tones. I mean obsidian skin due to the radiation of his home planet. And blood-red eyes, no, you know, pupils or anything like that. Just blood-red. He looks like a monster. However, he is probably the softest of all the Primarchs, at least in terms of emotion and heart. Um, I think the large distinction I would make between him and every single other Primarch is that all of the Primarchs besides him are kind of, are well, I won't say all, a vast majority are warriors first. That is, you know, that's their bread and butter. That's what they were made for. It's what they were designed for. It's what they do every day, is they wake up and they get ready for to commit violence. Now, whether that's for a noble cause or not, depends, but that's kind of their driving motivation. But Vulcan, in the lore, that was never his priority. Um, Vulcan, first and foremost, is a craftsman. Uh, it... Long story short, uh, when the Primarchs were all itty-bitty babies, they were scattered across the galaxy due to warp shenanigans. And uh, where Vulcan landed was a death world. Think of it as a planet that is uh, always trying to kill its populace. And, you know, it is a magmic world where he crashed as a wee little babe. And he was taken in by a human who raised him as his son. Uh, and he had a loving father that taught him he, the only trade that he knew, blacksmithing. 
And that was the pivotal driving motivation for him as a character. Uh, was to create rather than destroy. Would you agree with that, John? Yeah, I'd agree. He's a, as a character from a fundamental base, he's built to be a builder and not a destroyer. Um, you'll notice that as a kind of a dichotomy within a lot of the Primark stories is that some of them are built to, are, are made to be builders or people who make things. Whether that's soldiers, whether that's armaments, whether that's buildings, whether that's bureaucracy, they build stuff. And then you have ones whose entire purpose is to destroy or do violence. And it's a common theme throughout the story of some of them were just built different and some of them were kind of were built as tools for a very specific task. And uh, some of them embrace it and some of them rail against it. Yeah. And... For Vulcan, I he's a character who leaned into it. Um, when he was taught how to smith, he took to it quickly. And he grew fast. And in fact, he actually didn't even have his first sort of, I guess I'll call it blooding or violent uh, action until he was older. Um, he was totally content to spend years with his father. Well, I who he thought who of as his father, the person who adopted him and raised him, you know, in a loving, poor home, uh, just making what he could and becoming a master of the forge and making these wondrous items that the people of the world at the time uh, were sort of in, in awe of. And he became a softened character because of that, backstory you know he knew the love of a family he knew the love of a community and he knew the love of craft and that becomes pivotal for who he is later but essentially even his first violent action wasn't because he decided i wish to murder it was because he wanted to protect the people around him um so for many people who already know the faction, this will be a little bit of a, a diversion that you don't need. But for people who aren't super familiar, um, there is a faction in the Warhammer 40k world called the Drukari, or the Dark Eldar. Uh, they are a wicked race of pirates. Not in the cool way, in the really shitty way. <laughs> yeah, in the awful way. I don't mean like tubular, dude. No, no, no. They're bastards. And... They sort of teleport out of space and they grab slaves to torture and assault and test on and flay alive and cause pain and agony to. And that's their entire society. And they're awful. And they had been plaguing Nocturne for a long time. They would come through in the night, they would grab a bunch of people and then flee. And uh, one night while Vulcan was with his father, this happened. They arrived, and his uh, father told him essentially, you know, get down, we'll turn off the lights, we'll hide, they'll pass us by. And Vulcan said, and this is not a direct quote, but a good summary, my precious baby daddy, whom I love so much, that is a dog doo-doo plan. And then he took a dollar and he put it in the swear jar, and then he grabbed his two blacksmith hammers and walked out the front door. <laughs> and when an Eldar came up to try to take his father, he crushed that Eldar with a hammer. And then a second Eldar came up and he pulped them. And he kept 
swinging like a game of whack-a-mole at Chuck E. Cheese and just kept crushing these little elven bastards until finally they didn't take any of the populace and they just left. And when everybody came outside in the light of the morning, it was Vulcan, surrounded by crushed Eldars um, that he had essentially turned to protect his hometown. And I think that small anecdote shows a whole lot about Vulcan's trajectory from there on. Um, Vulcan's Vulcan's means or reason to go to war was only ever for the people of the Imperium around him. Uh, It was never to expand an empire or to gather resources or to purge the heretics. It was to protect the people of the Imperium. And uh, I feel like of all the Primarchs, he's probably the one who thinks about the little guy the most. And it is evident many, many times in the Horus Heresy, uh, you know, eventually the Emperor finds him, he raises him to power, he shows him the galaxy at large, you know, hands him a legion. And then a Vulcan, instead of treating them like tools, treats them as sons. He treats them how his father lovingly treated him. Yeah, I think that's also another important part about Vulcan is that he doesn't... A lot of the other Primarchs have this obsession with the Emperor as their father. It's never really, like, clear that Vulcan ever really thinks that way about the Emperor. He he already had his dad. He doesn't need the new one. The Emperor's not really that kind of guy for him. Mm-hmm. Certainly well-respected. Um he certainly believes in the Emperor, but I don't know if the Emperor is necessarily his father, because he already had a loving father. Um, and I also think one of the ways you can tell a lot about a Primarch is how they interact with their sons, or, you know, their soldiers. Some of them don't even view them as sons. Um, and there are, are a couple of distinctions that makes Vulcan's interactions with them really interesting. And I think the best one is actually in the Primarch novel titled Vulcan. Um, I, I've i seen some reviews online kind of bashing this book, saying like, oh man, there's not enough Vulcan in it. Uh. However, uh, I think what those reviews miss is that the Primarch novels aren't necessarily supposed to just be a first person perspective of what a Primarch is doing. They are supposed to give you an insight on the core understanding of who that character is. What they are about at their deepest levels. And I think what the author was trying to do was to show you that the best way to understand Vulcan is to watch how he interacts with his sons and how he inspires them. And um, whereas some Primarchs kind of treat rule over their soldiers with an iron fist and others uh, ignore them entirely or some even kill them. Looking at you, Angron. Um, hey, my boy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Vulcan viewed them as children who he was supposed to raise. He taught them blacksmithing <clears throat> as his father taught him blacksmithing. He showed them care and affection how his father showed him care and affection. And he was candid with them in ways that many other Primarchs were not. Um, Even talking to them about things that in other chapters would be outright heresy. Uh, For example, there was a scene where uh, his 
newest space marines were waiting for word on when they can go reinforce their Terran brothers on another planet who are embattled. And um, Vulcan is talking to the sun and he asks them, do you doubt the emperor? And the sun tries to give him like a diplomatic answer. You know, the, it's kind of like when your boss asks you the hardest of questions and you don't want to give the hardest answer. However, uh, Vulcan responds, the only way that this will work is if we are honest with one another. I have had your doubts. Share yours with me. And his son opens up to him. He explains that he's worried that the Terran brothers are just going to be sacrificed, that the emperor doesn't care about the lives of the people under him, that maybe they aren't fighting for the right reasons. And that interaction is so, so rare in 40k because it's usually such a dark, self-flagellating setting that you usually don't get a whole lot of, hey man, tell me how you're feeling. But you hey do man, here. I, you're, you're an eight foot tall murder machine. What do you mean you don't want to murder stuff? Yeah, it just doesn't seem like the thing I want to do. Nah, I get that, man. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I love it. I love it. It's a hell of an interaction. Um, and that trickles through the entire Legion. That they're all willing to trust Vulcan. And it is uh, sort of shown more when finally, towards the end of that book, spoiler alert, uh, they finally get to go reinforce the brothers that they never met. The Terran-born Marines, who Vulcan has never even met. They have heard that they have a Primarch out in the galaxy that might be on the way at some point, but he's never met them. So they finally get there. They drop in heavy on the planet. They are fighting a colossal, colossal orc wall that the Terran Marines have been fighting in a last stand action to allow civilians a time to uh, evacuate for months. They're down on their last legs. They're damn near out of ammo. They're on a planet that is heaving and cracking apart and having lava run everywhere. And uh, by the time they go to reinforce them, there's only, uh, I think it's like 150 of the Terran Marines left alive. And many of them are injured. Um, and they get there. And oftentimes, this is where uh, you would have Primarchs who would maybe try to push those non-native marines to the side or to get rid of them or you know essentially dissolve them so they could have full control over their sons that they made and they picked but instead when vulcan arrives um, he gives a speech about how this was a thankless act and the imperium as a whole will never thank you the people who evacuated will never have the chance to thank you and you didn't do it expecting a thank you but alas, you have mine. And then instead of them kneeling to him, he kneels to them. Because they held his values more than he could have taught them to. Um, and in kneeling to them, one, it's a very cool moment. But in two, he buys their everlasting loyalty. By being good boy in this world of terrible dark stuff. Good boy buys loyalty. He didn't do a demon ritual. There was no, like... Civilian sacrifices, no one had to die in a manufactorum. He just does the thing. And I love it. Um, I am a firm believer that the shittiest world does not have to be shitty everywhere. And that you don't necessarily have to give in to it. And I think 
Vulcan is an incredible example of that as a character. Um, yeah. Because there is at no point that Vulcan becomes a cynic and decides, you know, oh, the people of the Imperium, like the people of the Imperium aren't worth protecting. It, it never happens. The only reason that the Imperium exists is for the people that are making it exist. The, the average folks. And they deserve to be helped. Well, he's like the epitome of there's work that needs to be done. Might as well just do it. Yeah. Uh, there are people that need healing, so let's get out there. Um, and the Emperor even eventually explains to him that his heart is really the best thing, he, the best trait that he has. Which is surprising because Vulcan is also like physically the strongest Primarch. And I don't mean like best fighter or anything. No, no, no. I mean like if you were doing a lift contest, he lifts the most. Yeah, yeah, he's a big boy. So you would think that with that Herculean strength that that would be what the Emperor wanted him for, but no. Uh, we know from the newest Horse Heresy novels that that's not the case. Um, when the Imperium was assaulted on their throne world here on Terra, when it looked like there might actually be a full loyalist loss to the traitors, Vulcan shows up to meet with the Emperor. And the Emperor explains that there's a weapon that can destroy everything on Terra with the push of a button. And if the traitors honestly look like they're going to take the throne, he entrusts Vulcan to hit the button. Because many of the other sons would be too eager to do so, and because they wouldn't care how much life they would be costing. But for Vulcan... He knows he wouldn't press it unless he had to. And he entrusts him with that, like, almost society-shattering relic. Because no one else is soft enough to understand the cost of human life. And, man, that's just a guy that I think is neat. Um, very neat. I think he's so neat. He's very cool. And uh, it helps that I've listened to the audiobooks, who have a wonderful voice actor for Vulcan. Um, I don't know accents well enough, but he's sort of got like a warm, lively voice with a sort of, I, I don't know the dialect, but sort of, uh, African, uh, accent. And he just sounds like a real nice fella and I would follow him to war. Um, I think a lot of the Primarchs, <laughs> <clears throat> I would. Like, a lot of the Primarchs, I listen to their spiel, and I'm like, who the hell would fight for you? What kind of psycho would go to war with you? Um, but for Vulcan, it just seems imminent for me. Like, the argument that there are people evacuating who will die if we do nothing, I find incredibly compelling. And if there was ever a reason to go to fight, that is the reason. At least for me. And uh, Vulcan is sort of the summation of that philosophy of that ideology and it makes him my favorite by a country mile would you like to hear about mine now joe oh god oh god we've I... talked about the good boy what about now the bastard oh god i knew you're gonna come in here with some asshole uh john you uh, know karn the betrayer is not primark right i know karn the betrayer is not primark um but he does have a dad, and that dad's really shitty. <laughs> oh my god, I literally just said that Angrod was a bastard during my explanation of Vulcan. 
Yes. Uh, so I have a hard time picking uh, about like an absolute favorite Primarch, but my favorite traitor Primarch for sure is Angron. Um, he was thrown much like Vulcan was thrown on on a volcano world to a loving father. Vulcan was through not Vulcan. Angron was thrown to a slave world with a huge wealth gap in which he was forced to fight in slave pits for all his entire life until he leaves. He escapes the slave pits with all of his comrade gladiators to start a guerrilla war against the people who enslaved him and his, 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 his friends fights them to the death. And when the time comes for the final death where him and his friends will die together free, the emperor were, removes him from that war and he has to watch all of his friends die yeah it's it's a very spartacus tale um yes minus the satisfying ending of spartacus yes um and much like the first time vulcan had to take a life was against drukari uh the first time angron had to take a life was for self-preservation um what happens is like he is having to crawl up this this parapet like this this tower to get to the top and there can only be one person at the top of this tower but he keeps trying to pull people and this is angron as like a kid like he's like 12 or 13 essentially in this and he's trying to pull people up with him like he's carrying people on his back he is trying to take as many people with him as he can to hold them up there but as he's doing it the people who own him the the slave owners are now like taking these little drones and shocking him until he starts dropping people into this vat of acid underneath him. And he's had to like all these people die around him constantly for him to live. Um, and it, it kind of breaks a part of him. Like that's, that's a part of the story that you kind of see. That's where it all starts. That's where he becomes violent is he goes, there are truly evil, wretched people in this world, and they have to die. And he slowly gets corrupted by that as a concept. Mm-hmm. That he also becomes the corrupted evil person because he can't let it go. Yeah. Um, Rightfully so, to a degree. His rage takes too far. Yeah, he, he gives in to the rage too much. And that's a, that's a constant thing that happens because, like... They they do experimentation on him like like he is a tortured soul before the emperor even sees him and then the emperor tortures him more and gives him no support. Yeah, like well, and he also a... he doesn't have a sort of support group like a lot of the primarchs have friends in their brothers. Um, you know, for example, Sanguinius is very close with uh, Horus, uh, or Ferris is really close with. Uh, Fulgrim, and they have brothers who can relate to them and who they can lean on to, you know, get through their different trials, because being a Primarch's hard. But Angron never connected with the other brothers. Um, so the Emperor gave him no support, and then he also didn't have any friends in the other Primarchs, which further isolated him. Yeah, like the closest thing he he had was Logar, and Logar didn't necessarily. Angron did not necessarily look at Logar as a friend. Logar looked at Angron as somebody who needed help. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's the closest they got to like friendship. The 
other thing with Angron is his the way he treats his sons. Uh, he actively kills his own sons. Um, most of the world leaders kill each other all the time. They are just constantly at war with each other. As a one, as a way of proving martial strength. Two, because they get into rage-induced, manic moments, and they just start putting each other down. Angron has only paused a handful of times in those rages with his sons, and in those moments of clarity, he feels incredibly bad. And in there's a couple different world leaders novels. Um, one of them in particular, there is a world leaders librarian. Before they killed all the psychers, who dealt like the entire Primark book is this librarian delving into Angron's memories and where Angron came from, what he did, all of this, like why he is how who he is. And at the end, like once he, he comes out of that and he looks at Angron in the face and Angron is beating him to death, trying to get him to, to, to get away because he concept of a librarian and being connected to the warp near him with his butcher's nails hurts him physically. So he's in this huge rage-induced just fury. He's pummeling this librarian to death. This librarian looks at him and goes, it's okay, I understand. I've seen it. And then like says a quote that Angron's old father figure from the, his gladiator days, the closest he had to a father figure, says to him, and Angron stops, and almost, like the briefest second, almost just, just stops. And he starts crying. And then the murder nails dig in, and they push him further and further, and he tries to fight it. He starts trying to scratch his own head until he completely loses control and kills the librarian. Which, by the way, the and murder that, nails were a tool that the slavers put into their gladiators to induce artificial anger and rage. Yeah, so there are these uh, biochemical implants in the brain where if you are committing violence, they're basically uh, battle drugs. It's an addictive battle drug substance that you get more and more high the more and more killing you do. Um, When you're not killing, it's like you're in withdrawals constantly. Mm -hmm. It's a devious bastard tool. Yes, it's very, very wretched. And the only reason why they're put into Angron in the first place is because Angron refuses to kill his his uh, his father figure. There's a character that he meets in the gladiator pits that teaches him how to be a gladiator and to survive. And Angron uses what he learns to try to keep as many of the gladiators alive as possible while they're fighting. And he starts training the other gladiators. And he adapts really well to this. And he's like trying to he's trying to get this old man out. This old man who was kind to him, who like took care of him his first couple nights in the gladiator pits. And then he has to kill him. And the, the slavers make him kill him. And he refuses to time and time again. And he takes the punishment time and time again. He's willing to die for this until the final punishment was they force him into the murder nails. And the murder nails force him to kill this man. Um, again, very tortured character. Just very tragic, just entirely. And I think all the more tragic because, like, some of the traitor Primarchs, I think, were doomed to always be bastards because they were bastards. But I think Angron could have been saved. Well, not which makes only could it have all the saved. more sad. Like, I think if someone, if the Emperor mainly 
would have had just a little bit of emotional sense or just a little bit of empathy, he could have turned him from the dark side. Like, he he just could have. He might have always been dark, and he might have always had rage impulses, but maybe not would have gone full cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs and started cutting his sons in half with a chain axe. Well, like, the other thing is when he's a gladiator, he, uh, uh, like, finds out he has a psychic ability, but doesn't know that they're psychic abilities. And he finds out that he can take all of the pain away and all of the misery that the other gladiators feel away and put it onto himself. He has, like, super empathy in a way, much like Sanguinius does to a degree. Mm-hmm. And he is pulling all of these people suffering at the end of the night every night onto himself as he is trying to give them at least some form of peace in their lives. And he starts doing this as a young kid, and it only gets worse as he gets older, as his anger keeps increasing. He keeps getting more and more angry, at not at these people that are suffering, but angry at the slave masters who are in charge of, who are forcing this, who are making this happening. He's angry at the, the people watching the gladiator pits and why they, they have this look of excitement in their eyes as he watches his friends die. Like, he, he gets so angry at these things. To the point where, like, he comes back to it later when he has a space marine later and just nukes the planet. He, like, he glasses the planet entirely. Yeah, I mean, it is one thing for humans to be suffering due to something outside of their control. A natural disaster, you know, something like that. But it's another for a wretched, wretched human being to cause it systematically. Yes. Ugh. And... You know, past that, when you get further into the story, it only gets more tragic. You know, like, he finally starts feeling a little bit more welcomed by his sons, like with Karn. Like, Karn understands, gives him some space, tries to work it out with him, and they start making progress. Uh, and then the horse heresy happens, right? Like, goddamn Horus. God and right before the... Right before the Horus Heresy, the, all the world leaders take on the murder nails so they can try to understand their father more. And they're all starting to get to know each other. Now, granted, it's in a very toxic, we're going to kill each other way, but they're starting to get to know each other. And then the Horus Heresy starts, and they're thrust into war after war after war. And it just the murder nails get to a point where they just don't stop, because it's just constant killing. And Angron eventually is in so much pain and misery and is telling Logar about how he wanted to die. Like, he wanted to die before he even met the Emperor. He has wanted to die forever. And he every time he throws himself into combat, the reason he is so reckless is because he's hoping that that will be the day something finally kills him. And Logar, kind of in a selfish moment, thinks he knows how to fix it for Angron. And then forcibly turns him into a demon prince. So this character who's been wanting his suffering to end his entire life is now turned into an immortal rage machine. And that Logar can't thinks, die. Literally that can't, can't die. That can't die. And Logar thinks this will give him a sense of purpose and will give him something to like do and help him you know, grow. But it just makes him suffer more. And he retreats more internally to the point where he kind of stops becoming the character he was in the beginning, ever. And is now just an angry, raging machine that is dropped on planets. Or he travels through warp portals on, into places to just demolish and wreck everything. I mean, after 
after the he's turned into a demon prince, the world leaders have to chain him and lock him into a labyrinth prison originally built for Vulcan on the Conqueror, the, his flagship, so that he doesn't kill everyone on the ship, so that they can take him to Terra for the final fight. Mm-hmm. And even the other world leaders are praying and hoping this is what finally kills him because they don't know that he's a demon Primark and can't die. Yeah, And it just, it gets bad. It gets so bad. And there, there's even a moment, even when he's like that in uh, later where he's talking, like Sanguinius and him are on a, a battlefield and like he pauses for a second when fighting Sanguinius because Sanguinius shows him some empathy. And he, he like pauses for a second. And that's what ends up, you know, stopping his rampage for a little bit. It's just this tortured character who's just constantly angry, that's pushing, and he's just, desperately grasping for some sort of end to his nightmare that has just been his life. It's a very interesting character. Big, big, huge fan. And he still like his son Karn more, though. I know you do. John just wistfully stares at a picture of Karn every night before going to sleep. Just like that Wolverine meme. Just um, like that Wolverine meme that Tanner made. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I do think Agrod is a cool character. Um... It just makes me real, real mad. Uh, it gives me those heretical thoughts where I start doubting the Emperor for being such a dipshit. But, you know, luckily, uh, my Primarch is Vulcan, so I can have those heretical thoughts in, uh, in the safe space that we have for our conversations. So it's fine. Yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't... I think we both have some uh, tasteful Primarch picks. Uh, I don't think we're out here picking the awful ones, necessarily. Yeah, my favorite isn't Logar. <laughs> oh my! <laughs> Who the hell picks Lorgar or Perturabo? It... <sighs> nope, not start <laughs> the flame. I love his legion. Hate the Primarch. <laughs> I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna start the flame war. However, for people out there. I would love to hear y'all's favorite Primarchs and why. Uh, Even if it is Perturabo or Logar. Yeah, I am open to your arguments for why you like these bastards. uh, And maybe you'll turn me around on them. Uh, I'm always open to that. Now, anytime someone can kind of open my eyes to a new angle of the lore, I am always down for. And uh, I just think it's a fun conversation to have. Because I am a child who likes to talk about people's favorite dinosaurs or deep sea creature or birds or you know any other things because i am who i am we just like talking to people like that just do <laughs> just chatty kathy's uh so if you guys do want to share your thoughts or who your favorite primark are reach out to us let us know you can reach out to us on social media or in the comment section down below if you're one of the few youtube people and uh if you're want to go the extra mile send an episode of the podcast to the friends um it's a, you know, we're a smaller podcast, so every little bit helps. And uh, even a single viewer can maybe over time help us, you know, expand and grow. And we'll be, don't you worry, we'll be working on extra stuff coming up. And uh, for now, that's been all of our opinions. Bonafide, Kentucky Fried. We'll see y'all next time.